Amber Freed lives in Denver, Colorado, with her husband and their two children. Come inside. I even were making Christmas cookies today. I even made a snack for you to take back with you. Don't forget it. I'm going to put it near the front door. Amber's twins, Riley and Maxwell, are two and a half years old. That's Riley chattering away. And this is Maxwell. You won't hear Maxwell talk in this episode because he doesn't speak. He's nonverbal. Oh, come on in. There's room for everybody. Maxwell has a rare genetic condition. And today on the show, we're telling the story of Amber Freed's extraordinary efforts to stop Maxwell's disease from progressing and the technology that could help make that happen. Technology that involves five very special mice that have traveled to the U.S. all the way from China. I'm Ariel Dzurmros. This is Reset. We noticed very early on that Maxwell wasn't developing at the same pace as Riley. Even at four months, Riley was grabbing for rattles and interested in her surroundings. Maxwell spent all of his time staring at his finger and could not use his hands at all. Where's your cat, Maxie? So we went to our pediatrician and I said, my baby can't use his hands. And the doctor said, every baby can use his hands. And I said, go ahead, try. Like, prove me wrong, please. And the doctor saw the same thing I did. The day of the diagnosis, the doctors called and asked Mark and I to come in immediately. When doctors ask you to come in to discuss a diagnosis, and then when you're led to a really quiet little sterile room with a lot of doctors with the saddest faces you've ever seen, you you know immediately... It's really bad. The worst part of this story is the condition didn't even have a name. And I remember my husband and I sat in the bad news room at Children's Hospital. And the doctors told us, your son is diagnosed with SLC6A1. And the only thought that kept running through my head was, that's not a name of a disease. That's the name of a flight to Salt Lake City. When Maxwell was diagnosed, very little was known about his condition. He was the 34th person in the world to get this diagnosis. In fact, it's so rare that doctors just refer to it by the gene that's affected, SLC6A1. And if left untreated, the disease could cause debilitating epilepsy. So right now, he's making small developmental strides But we have 12 therapy sessions a week. He's globally delayed. He has a movement disorder. He's nonverbal. But he doesn't have the full debilitating epilepsy, which is coming. And we've seen signs that it is coming. Maxwell doesn't have seizures, at least not yet. But those symptoms could start happening as soon as he turns three. And once that happens, typically children start losing 
all of the skills they fought so hard to gain. What do you see? So he's sort of up against it right now, which is why there's a sort of race against time aspect to her story. That's Dan Vergano. He's a science reporter for BuzzFeed News. In late 2019, Amber got in touch with Dan, and her pitch was hard to resist. She said she was about to smuggle a mutant mouse from China to save the life of her son. Those mice, they might be the key to developing a treatment for Maxwell. They were genetically engineered to act as a model of his disease. But before we get to the mice, here's Dan's explanation of Maxwell's condition. So uh, Maxwell uh, was born with a a genetic defect. This gene, uh, SLC6A1, in him has a point mutation, which is a simple um, mix-up of some of the letters in the gene. And what that does is prevents uh, the uh, protein that this gene produces from being produced in large enough amounts in his brain to let signals go through his brain in an effective way. And so they don't stop. Um, The the gene essentially is a, a sponge or a vacuum cleaner for... Uh, messages going through the brain, and, and they need to stop, and they need to have a beginning and ending. And if they don't, then they, things get messed up in the brain. And, you know, it's not, a, it's not deadly, but it, you know, will uh, affect his life in a very severe way. Uh, he'll have de- developmental disorders and severe uh, epileptic fits his whole life. <laughs> Max, well, what do you want? Do you want dinosaurs? Is there a treatment for this disease that, that appears to be extremely rare? There's no treatment for this disease. When a parent gets a diagnosis like this that is as rare as this disease is, and they're told there's no treatment available, what happens then? They're told to prepare for their child's life being uh, severely affected by the disease and that there's nothing to be done about it, and that what they should basically plan on is uh, living with the Disorder, And in some cases, you know, these are very serious and, uh, and deadly. And in, in a lot of cases, they're ones that just cause a lifetime of uh, developmental disability. So how did Amber react to being told that? The conversation in that diagnostic room turned into support services. And I looked back at the doctors and said... We're not going to talk about that today. If this were your child right now, what would you do? What would you do in the next five minutes? What would you do in the next day? They said, start calling scientists. And every instinct in my body said, you'll have your whole lifetime to cry for yourself. At this exact moment, You put your feelings and sadness aside. This isn't about you. This is about Maxwell. And you fight like the third monkey on the loading deck to Noah's Ark, and it started to rain. So Amber went back to her office, and she quit her job on the spot. Then she did her homework. She's quite a resourceful person, has experience in the financial industry, researching things in a hurry, and she just turned around and and educated herself on... uh, uh, neuroscience and said, okay, there is a pathway for treating this that I can see now. And she downloaded all the papers related to this uh, particular disorder. And there weren't that many, you know, they gave her one, but also the whole wider world of neurotransmitters, as well as uh, the wider world of genetic uh, treatments, uh, gene therapy, gene engineering, which has been revolutionized in the last decade by uh, a technology called CRISPR. 
CRISPR, the gene editing technology that keeps popping up in the news, and the tool that helped make the five mice I mentioned earlier. My last science experiment involved sea monkeys in the fourth grade. So I taught myself some microbiology. I gave myself a PhD in microbiology overnight, and I became an expert in the science myself. The research Amber did helped her understand her son's disease, as well as the treatment that might help him. The way it works is uh, there's a gene that's messed up. Everybody gets uh, two sets of genes from their parents, right? And one pair, one set that Maxwell got from one of his parents is, is messed up, right? So that's the problem here. So you got one gene that's functioning, one gene that's not functioning. So you have to fix that. And there is a technique that can make that happen. Basically, scientists can attach a corrected version of the gene, one that works the way it's supposed to, to a virus that doesn't hurt the patient. It's harmless. And then... You inject it into the spine of the person. Uh, It goes up to the brain. Uh, It infects the person. The person gets the virus. And when the virus passes, it leaves behind a working gene in the patient's cells where the DNA is located. So the gene therapy doesn't alter Maxwell's mutation. But if it's administered to Maxwell in time his body can use that added gene, and hopefully that would prevent the seizures from setting in and causing further developmental disabilities and health problems. You can stop in its tracks. But first, Amber had to find a researcher who'd be willing to make a gene therapy like that, tailored specifically to treat Maxwell's rare disease. And that's far from easy. The kind of science that's required to make a treatment like that costs a lot of money. And because so few people have this disease... It's not exactly a big draw for scientists, let alone Big Pharma. But Amber didn't let that phase her. After learning everything she could about Maxwell's disease, she devised a plan to make scientists hear her out. She stalks researchers all over the country. Yes, I made it weird. And, you know, people uh, answered her sometimes. When they didn't answer her, she sent them snacks by Uber Eats to oblige them to her. Wait, you know, like seriously? Yeah. She bribed them with food? Well, that's the great way to do anything, right? So she sends graduate students in labs, you know, Uber Eats, and, you know, the grad students say to the doc, like, hey, come on, you know, help this lady out. Yes, cookies. Everybody likes a snack in the afternoon. Snacks transcend education level, finances, geographic location. Everybody wants a snack. So cookies are the great equalizer. The great equalizer. Eventually, Amber found a researcher who she thought might have the right expertise to help her. All the signs pointed to uh, UT Southwestern and Dr. Gray's lab. Dr. Stephen Gray had previously developed a genetic therapy for a child with a similar disease to Maxwell's. But that didn't guarantee anything. Amber still had to convince him to treat her son. So first she went to their lab and got in touch with them. And the answer she got back was, no, uh, you aren't a good candidate for this. Amber didn't take no for an answer. Eventually, she got Dr. Gray himself on the phone. But he didn't have time to talk. He told her he was on his way to deliver a speech at a health conference in another city. And I said, oh, how interesting. I go to so many conferences, too. Which one are you going to just in case we run into each other? Dr. Gray was heading to Bethesda, Maryland, to deliver a speech at the National Institutes of Health. So Amber, being Amber, she got on an airplane and stalked the guy. Wait, what? (laughs) Yeah, she flies to Washington, D.C. She walks uh, to the front of the talk. If you mean he's about to give a talk at an NIH conference on genetic disorders in uh, children. 
and I just walked right up to the front row and I sat down next to him. It had actually never occurred to me what I would do when I was sitting next to him. So I stoically stared forward, trying to think of next steps. And he turned to me and said, hi, Amber. (laughs) And instead of, you know, calling the police, you know, what he said was like, let's talk after I give my talk, okay? (laughs) We went to dinner that night and I said, this is the disease. This is why I think it will work. And this is why we're a good partner for you. Amber made her case over dinner. I knew that SLC6A1 was a monogenic haploinsufficient heterozygous loss of function and was amenable to an AAV9 gene-administered therapy. By the end of that dinner, Maxwell had a new doctor. We hit every checkbox on Steve Gray's list, and he was the person to make it happen for us. But Dr. Gray also needed Amber to understand what that would mean and how much work she still had ahead of her. And he said, if I take you on, I'm going to need a couple things from you. Be prepared to fundraise between four and seven million dollars to advance a phase one clinical trial. Coming up, we finally talk about the mice. This is Reset. Okay, so you've heard about the methods Amber used to convince scientists to take Maxwell on and help develop a treatment. You also heard about how much money this would all cost, up to $7 million. To get that money, Amber and her husband started a foundation and hold regular fundraising events. They have now raised $1 million, which isn't $7 million, but is still progress. And there's been some progress on the science end, too. Since October of 2018, Dr. Gray and a team of researchers have been working on a therapy for Maxwell. And now they've got one that's ready for testing. Which finally brings me back to the mice. BuzzFeed News reporter Dan Vergano again. The mouse is a stand-in for Maxwell. So the first they're going to test the virus with the uh, gene uh, vector on it and try it out on the mouse first to see if it's safe. You know, if it damages the mouse, then you don't want to try it on a child. That's the whole idea. It turns out in China, the CRISPR mouse is a lot less. The scientists in China were the absolute best of humanity. They were so sweet, excited to help, invigorated to help, and happy to be part of something bigger than themselves. And they said, Amber, we will start making a mouse of Maxwell tomorrow. Making mice takes a long time time because a specific patient's point mutation is knocked in to the mouse's DNA. Fast forward nine months, I get an email from the Chinese laboratory. Amber, Maxwell's mouse is ready. And good news, the mouse is sick. Many times you'll make a patient mutation and for whatever reason, it just didn't work right. But this mouse was an absolute home run. The researchers in China made five mice with the same mutation as Maxwell. Two breeding pairs and a spare. But before the testing could begin, Amber had to get them to the U.S. They flew China Eastern Airlines, and I tracked the flight all day. I was so nervous, I updated my phone, refreshed the window at least 
a thousand times during that day. How did you feel when they finally landed? So much relief. There have only been probably five nights since Maxwell's diagnosis that I was just able to go to bed and fall asleep without any trouble and wake up without anxiety. And this was one of those nights. I'm still in shock that uh, the technology exists to create these kind of mice. When I was a young reporter, you know, that we had to have knockout mice. It was a very elaborate process. And all you could do with a great deal of crossbreeding and effort was create mice that were lacking a gene. The notion that you can just whip up mice, I mean, in the matter of weeks or, or months, that actually possess the gene that you need in order to do this kind of research is phenomenal. I mean, like... Doing something like this would have been the equivalent of a human genome project, you know, 20 years ago. And the, the, these guys can do it in China for 50 grand or less. Unbelievable. So it, it's a real testimony to the revolution in sort of genetic engineering that's going on worldwide. And that it's just beginning to play out. We'll see 100 years from now, like, where it all goes. Maxwell's mice landed in the U.S. at the very end of 2019. After a quarantine period, they made their way to Dr. Gray's lab at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. Soon, the mice will receive the injection that researchers developed for Maxwell, and scientists will find out if it works, at least in mice. But testing the therapy on lab animals is just one step in a series of steps. The biggest hurdle for us is actually manufacturing the drug. It can be manufactured in an academic laboratory for around $1.5 million. But that is, can be up to a year-long wait time. If we had 3 or $4 million today, we could start manufacturing that drug with a company. And it would be done so much faster. But we need to have that money in hand. Things we're doing chronologically now could be done in parallel if we could fundraise more money. The fundraising is a crucial component to getting a treatment for Maxwell. Amber regularly asks people to donate money to help develop that therapy. So I asked her a question. Because of how rare this disease is, is it also reasonable to, to ask people to donate money to a cause that will only help a small number of children? What we're doing will be the building blocks of all gene therapies to come after us. So this isn't just about Maxwell. This isn't just about his disease. This is about every kid that has sort of a point mutation like this. That's right. The work we are doing will directly translate to every other rare disease. And there are 7,000 rare diseases in existence. There is virtually no funding through the National Institute of Health because it falls into just one bucket divided by 7,000. So all of the innovations have really been driven by sets of parents that share their knowledge and advance this research with academic institutions. So the next diagnosis, the process can be totally streamlined. One of the things that, that you mentioned to Dan Vergano at, at BuzzFeed News is that you're sort of in a unique position to be able to throw yourself into this work, right? You are able to do things like quit your job in order to focus on this. There are a lot of other families with children with incredibly rare diseases that can't do the same thing. How does that make you feel? It empowers me to fight for all of us. 
it's very, very hard. And our story is is not much different than most families like this. Like one, you have to go down to a single income household while spending all of your personal money on scientists. And you're right, there are a lot of families that for whatever reason cannot do this. And that is completely understandable. And I hope that every family listening knows that they are not alone. But for those of us that are able to throw ourselves into the science, we're doing this for all of us. I take every single parent phone call that reaches out to me and coach them and make introductions and do as much as I possibly can for them. This kind of medical research can only happen when a specific set of ingredients come together. You need the right scientists, you need time, and you need a lot of money. But Dan also points to another important element here. Amber Freed. This is all happening because Amber Freed is the person that she is. This is, a, this is one of the things that attracted us to the story. This is an x-ray for how new ther- therapies are, are developed. Uh, usually, it's not with a um, you know a parent quarterbacking the research. I mean, she literally assembled a research enterprise. She got all these researchers who were sort of tangentially involved in uh, these sort of neurotransmitters and their disorders, and you know welded them essentially uh, into a, a cooperative. You know, the different places: the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, Vanderbilt, UT Southwestern, uh, University in Colorado, where she was first diagnosed. You know, into a into a a mental enterprise into a scientific enterprise that's that's devoted to tackling this one genetic disease. Amber is incredibly determined. She's clearly a, an incredibly resourceful and determined person, clearly someone who understands uh, systems, bureaucratic systems in a way that most people don't. Uh, you have to be uh, superhuman just to understand a hospital bill, right? Like now try figuring this out. I think it's one in a million people, you know, at least, who uh, is that combination of tenaciousness and resourcefulness and, you know, sheer pluck, uh, who can do that sort of thing. You have talked to Amber. You have talked to researchers who who work in this field. What do you think of what she's doing? I think it's incredible. I, uh, you know, I have kids and... Uh, You know, what would you do? Asking a mother to, you know, raise millions of dollars. Um, that would be totally understandable to be furious and think, you know, Jesus this is broken. What's going on here? You know, to say to her, like, she's supposed to fix the medical system before she can fix her child, I think is unfair. You know, I, I do believe it's immoral to ask um, people to be heroic. To be clear, not every parent can do what Amber has done. Amber was able to quit her job, and she has the know-how to navigate the fundraising world as well as the medical world. She's not a rich kid, though. You know, I mean, she had a hard life. She's a, she's a tough kid. She, you know, she grew up in tough circumstances. That was another thing that struck me. You, you, you sort of made a point of, of mentioning that in your article. Why did you? Well, it's interesting, right? We're supposed to be telling people about the characters in our story. And, of course, it probably spoke to some people's suspicions. Uh, how could they not be in our era of rampant inequality that this was a rich person who was somehow getting a leg up where, you know, this is a person who, um, you know, has uh, brought herself up from very hard circumstances, the place she's in. 
And so that might color people's thinking or might cut off um, some kind of uncharitable thoughts about her that people have. You know, they can have think what they want, of course, but they we thought it was you know worthwhile for them to know that that uh, this wasn't the case of you know a Silicon Valley uh, you know heiress you know getting getting this. We we live with inequality, and God knows we don't want a dystopia where rich parents get these kind of treatments and poor ones don't. And that's the real fear that we, you know, are looking at is that there is a future if we continue down this path of $7 million treatments for this thing of like only the children of, of you know, uh, Steve Jobs can get these kind of things and people with single mothers and poor people are left out in the cold, which is I don't think something anybody wants. And so, you know, more attention needs to be paid and something needs to be done about this. In the meantime, Amber Freed has to forge her own path forward. It will be my biggest heartache in life that something like this could happen to my family. And it's so hard to look at this perfect, amazing little baby boy and know that something is wrong and that I could do something to help him. And it's impossible for me to sleep at night because I hear a clock ticking and I get right back up and I keep working. But of course, that takes away time that I could be making Christmas cookies with them today or taking them to the park. Or I'm sure I'm more impatient than I should be sometimes because I'm very sleep deprived. But I just love my children so much that I literally would go to the ends of the earth for them. If you want to know more about SLC6A1, Maxwell's disease, and if you want to read Dan Vergano's reporting, check out our show notes. We left some links there for you. This is Reset, and I'm Ariel Zuemros, but you don't have to say it that way. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at ADRS. You can also reach the Reset team by emailing reset at vox.com. We publish episodes three times a week, on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays. So if you haven't already, subscribe to the pod. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or in your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us. Martha Daniel, Will Reed, and Skylar Swenson produce the show. And by the way, Martha Daniel, who made this episode... This is her last show for us, at least for now, and we all wish her the best. Our engineer is Eric Gomez. Golda Arthur is our executive producer. Liz Kelly Nelson is the editorial director of Vox Podcasts. The mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme music. Special thanks this week to Matthew Simonson, who recorded with Amber in Denver, and Malachi Brodus, who recorded with Dan in D.C., Reset is produced in association with Stitcher, and we're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back on Tuesday. Later, nerds.